Are you happy? Do you ever even think about whether or not you are? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And happiness, when you think about it, is a pretty slippery concept. I mean, we all have different ways to define it. And your definition of happiness, well, that can change completely over and over again. But it's important to consider because how happy you feel is directly related to your quality of life. And that's directly related to your health and well-being. So stick with us and see what we can do in the next little while to help us all get happy. Yeah, we should talk about it more because is there anything more important than being happy? So we're going to meet one of the most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness. Her name is Gretchen Rubin. You've probably heard of her. She's a best-selling author. She's an expert on human nature. So what can we do to be happy in our lives? We're going to take a look at that concept in a very unusual way with Gretchen Rubin, one of the most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness and human nature. And then we're going to introduce you to what's got to be one of the happiest 98-year-olds alive today. He's had more than his share of tough times and challenges, but through it all, he has figured out how to be happy and how to love his life as much as ever. You're also going to hear a Growing Boulder classic interview with a woman who had something she always wanted to try but was afraid until she finally laced up her figure skates for the very first time at the age of 60. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. This is Growing Bolder. Gretchen Rubin is uh, one of the world's most influential observers of happiness and human nature. Uh, She's the author of multiple blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, including The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. In fact, her books have sold more than three and a half million copies worldwide. They've been published in more than 30 different languages. Uh, Gretchen is also the host of the award-winning podcast Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which has now been downloaded more than 220 million times. Her latest book is Life in Five Senses, How Exploring the Senses Got Me Out of My Head and Into the World. And Gretchen joins us now today from her home in New York City. Gretchen, how are you today? I'm so happy to be talking to you again. Thanks for having me. Let's start, if we can, w- w- with the uh, the epigraph, that little quote at the beginning of your book. It's from Andy Warhol, who said, nobody really looks at anything, it's too hard. And I think that's what your book obviously is is about, that fact applied to all five of our senses. We really don't see, we don't hear, we don't smell, we don't taste, and we don't feel to the extent that we're capable. And as I understand it from reading your book, you came to that realization right after a routine trip to the eye doctor. Tell us what happened and, and how it resulted in what is really a great book. Oh, well, thank you. I had a bad case of pink eye. uh, So I ended up going to the eye doctor and very casually, as I was getting ready to leave his office, he said to me, well, be sure to come back for your regular checkup, because as you know, you're more at risk for losing your vision. And he said it as if it was something like wear your sunscreen or drink enough water. And I stopped and I said, I, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about that. And he said, oh, yeah, you're you're extremely nearsighted. And that means you're more at risk for having a detached retina. And if mm. that happens, we want to catch it right away because it could affect your vision. And I have a friend who had just lost some of his vision to a, a detached retina. So that felt like a real possibility to me. 
So I walked out onto the street. I'm, I live in New York City, so I was getting ready to walk home. And I I just realized like how precious my sight was. And, you know, often we don't appreciate what we have until we lose it or we fear we might lose it. And I just realized I think of my sight as being so important, but I hadn't noticed one thing I saw on the way over. I had been stuck in my head. I was lost in a fog of preoccupation, didn't notice anything. And in that moment, it was like every knob in my brain just got jammed up to the maximum. And I could see every detail and I could hear every sound on a separate track and I could smell every smell. And, you know, New York City is pretty smelly. And it was just flooding in. And, and my whole walk home, it was this transcendent experience. It was almost a psychedelic experience. And I realized all this is happening all the time. But like you say, as Andy Warhol said, it's too hard. We don't tap into it. And I realized this is something that I had been missing in my study of happiness. I needed to connect with my five senses so that I could really like engage with the world and with other people and with myself. You know, well, good for you, and and thank you uh, to you for for not realizing it, but 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 sticking with it because I think it's you know we all kind of when we lose hot water for the day or here yeah. in Florida when we use lose electricity for a hurricane we're bummed out for a day, but then we forget about it. But you know, as as we've learned from many studies, our brains really are wired to perceive things that it feels are threats to us. Yes. It dismisses the stuff that that maybe is the important stuff. And, you know, what you ended up doing, which I really like, and it's kind of a thread through this entire book, is you made yourself participate in a year-long experiment, a five senses investigation, if you will. Tell us how you came to decide to do that and, and, and more importantly, what the results were. Well, I had the idea that studying my five senses would make me happier. And so I went out and got, you know, a giant amount of books and resources and research to learn about my five senses, because, you know, the more we know, the more we notice. And so I learned about the five senses. Why pick five senses? Right. Some science, you know, now we we think we have like 33, maybe even 35 senses, but I decided (laughs) to stick to the big five, the kindergarten five, or you could call them the Aristotelian five. And then I set myself just a bunch of experiments and adventures and to, and little things to try to push myself to engage with that sense, sometimes in a way that was very fun and playful, sometimes in a way that was more arduous, sometimes in a way that was more about learning. A lot of times it meant doing something with someone else, because what I found is uh, somewhat to my surprise that one of the best ways to use my five senses was to use it to engage with other people, to draw closer to my friends and my family through engaging with the five senses. And so you 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 literally stuck with this, as I understand it, because it's interesting. You know, your books, there's lessons inside uh, of lessons. And you say, you write in your book about your daily visits to the Metropolitan mm-hmm. Museum, yeah. that, that you used your love of discipline to discipline yourself, uh, uh, you right. know, to take to take a break from discipline, if you will. You know, it was yeah. kind of a forced recess. W- what did you get out of it? Yeah, one of my, I think my most ambitious experiment for everything that I did for the book Life in Five Senses was I decided that I would go to the Metropolitan Museum every day. I'm incredibly fortunate. I live within walking distance of the Met, and I have the time and the freedom to visit. I can even go for free since I'm a New York State resident, though I did join as a member. I mean, I just I, I'm very drawn to repetition. And familiarity and how like the possibilities of understanding things better as they change over time, how something else changes and how I change over time. 
And I'm also kind of an all or nothing person where I like doing something every day more than like some days or most days. It just felt more exciting and interesting and easier to me to do it every day. So I thought, okay, for a year, I'll go to the Met every day. And that year is long over, but I still go to the Met every day because I love it so much. And I learned so much about myself and also what I could see here, smell, taste, touch at the Met. It just expanded so much as I went over and over and over. I, you know, and I thought this was a really idiosyncratic thing to want to do. But since the book has come out, I've heard from a lot of people who also like to do something every day, like they do exactly the same hike with their dog or they're, they do forest bathing and they always go back to the same sit spot. I talked to a guy who always goes to the same large chain drugstore. I would I would do that. There's a lot going on in a big drugstore. I would go every day and see what's going on and see how it changes. I don't think this appeals to everyone, but to a certain kind of person, this is a very compelling kind of exercise in the senses. And, and it seems like as you continue to write this incredible wealth of books and information, you, you, you apply what you learn in one to another, because I know you wrote yep. a book about the importance and power of habits. So you turned this into a habit that now serves you every day. No, exactly. And, and you were right when you said that I, I use discipline to give myself a break from discipline. Like I had to schedule recess because I am, you know, uh, I am a person who can be rigid and sort of too devoted to my to-do list. And so I thought, well, if I put on my calendar, going to the Met, I'll use this as my free time, as my play time. And it really did become recess. And I think that's why I love doing it so much is it, I just walk through the doors and automatically, I just feel like, I can think about anything I want. I'm not trying to discipline my mind. I'm not trying to achieve anything. I just do whatever I feel like doing. I might be long there, a long time, short time. I might have a little, like a little quest. Maybe I'm just wandering around wherever I feel like. Um, it really does give me a sense of play in the middle of my workday. And, you know, and as research shows that often we do better. We work more productively and more creatively when we give ourselves these breaks. But I'm so rigid. I had to schedule my break. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't just take a break. Well, well, since you've gone there and you're talking about your, your own personality, uh, you mentioned in the book that your number one personal commandment is and has been for some time is simply to be Gretchen. How does that work? Yeah, well, everybody has to substitute his or her own name, of course. What I've learned, uh, and I learned this when I was writing The Happiness Project, and it's because, and I, it just, I, I understand it more with every passing year and with every book I write, is that there is no magic one-size-fits-all solution for happiness. We each have to figure it out for ourselves because we have different interests, different values, different temperament. And so we all have to figure it out for ourselves. And so what does it mean to be Gretchen? Well, like this idea of going to the Met every day. Some people like the idea of doing something every day. But I've talked to many people where they're like, you've got the whole world. Why in the world would you go back to the same place day after day after day? Like that's such that's such a waste of an opportunity. And again, it's not that I'm right and they're wrong or they're right and I'm wrong. It's just that I'm doing what's right for me. Be Gretchen. Go to the Met every day. And for someone else, that's not the right thing that they would want to do. And people are so different in what they would seek. And I think sometimes we think, well, if it works for other people, it should work for me. Or if other people value it, I should do it. I mean, a lot of people meditate. I've tried meditation. So many people that I respect really find meditation helpful. My college roommate meditates three hours a day. And I've tried it for months at a time. And it's just not a tool that works for me. And finally, I was like, be Gretchen. There are other tools that I can use that I find useful. This is not one of them. Move on. 
Um, instead of thinking like, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this when other people can? Be Gretchen. It is a great tool. And, and what I love about it, it, it really is. It, it's and I mean this with all due respect, it's obvious, but it's something that nobody has really ever wrapped their hands around. And that is that paying attention to your five senses is a pathway into the now, uh, into, yes. the, into the moment. I mean, I, I remember reading Be Here Now by Ram Dass back in 1973. And, and there's been so many different books about the importance of, of mindfulness and just yes. being able to live in the moment. But I never really considered that if we pay attention to all of our five senses, that's a pretty good way to get there. Well, yes. And of course, people talk about the five, four, three, two, one meditation. And, and you're right. This is something that people talk about. But what I think is a lot of times, like, I, I don't think that people grasp how this is so fun. This is can be it's so re- <laughs> invigorating. This is something that you don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to go out of your way. You don't have to run an errand. You don't have to spend time, energy or money. This is happening all around us all the time. And there are you can do big, uh, ambitious things like me going to the men or you can just do fun things like, OK, I'm going to stop and 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 ta- really taste some Heinz ketchup and notice how it hits all five tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter and umami. And in that way, connect with the moment. I love the sense of smell. And one of the things I love about the sense of smell is you can't bookmark it. You can't save it for later. You can't glut yourself on it. You can only experience it now. And if you keep trying to experience it, like you can listen to a song on a loop, but you can't keep experiencing a smell because of odor fatigue. You'll adapt to it and you won't even be able to keep smelling it. So it is through our senses, we can so effectively connect with the present moment, appreciate the world that is around us, something that people crave. And yet there's a playful, fun, lively way to do this. Because I think sometimes when people think about it, it feels like a lot of work. You know, it feels like, oh, I got to discipline the mind. It's like, okay, well, you could do that or you could do something more fun and just just tap into that, the, the, the kind of playfulness and the concreteness of the five senses. We're talking with uh, New York Times bestselling author Gretchen Rubin. Of course, you know her. Everybody knows her from The Happiness Project, from her podcast. Uh, her latest book, among many, is Life in Five Senses. It, it's a great read. And you, you, you mentioned that, you know, Gretchen, that you're attracted to the sense of smell. One of the last pages in your book is your personal five senses self portrait. And as I read that, I, I immediately got it because I the sense of smell, I think one of them is I could smell your black coffee because it was on your list. <laughs> now, I could smell your hand sanitizer at the Met. You know, it, it really is interesting. I think it grounds us all and makes us start to think about each of the five senses and what we could do. Is, is creating a five senses self-portrait one of the exercises in the book? Yeah, well, it's funny because I created a five senses portrait of my husband was my first thing. And I so I was trying to think of all the most notable uh, memories that I had associated with him. And then as I I turned in my manuscript and my editor said, hey, Christian, I think you should do a self-portrait of yourself with five senses. And it was funny because I'd written this whole book. But even that I had to sit and think like (laughs) if I was going to pick five for each of the five senses, if I was if I was going to pick five notable you know, or kind of highlight senses and associations, what would I choose? Well, I love this kind of exercise because it's very creative and you really have to think and it brings up all these memories and you have to decide and it feels very creative. And yet at the same time, it's very easy to execute. You're just writing down a few phrases, like, you know, 25 phrases on a piece of paper. And so it feels like it's very easy to do it well. And yet it has that feeling of creativity that's so satisfying to us. 
it's funny, like since I've done, I've talked about this this exercise, people have said how they will often do it as a gift because it because it really makes people feel like, wow, you're you've really been paying attention to me. You've really tried to kind of paint a portrait of me. And so it's a lovely thing or it's a wonderful thing to do in memory of somebody who has died because you think, well, I don't want to lose those memories. I want to hold on to the, the concrete presence of that person and how better to hold on to that or even to convey it to somebody else than by making a five senses portrait of them as a memorial. There's so many important things in this book, folks. Uh, uh, and Gretchen, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the creativity aspect, because I think this is maybe one of the most important, because we talk all the time about the importance and power of creativity. And so many people say, you know, I'm not creative. And of course, we're all creative. And, you know, I, I read a study one time that it was a study that was actually published in a prestigious journal that, uh, you know, they looked at all of the different personality traits and they concluded that of all of them that only creativity confers longevity that people with above average creativity actually have a 12 percent decrease in mortality risk they live longer and the reason that they hypothesize is that they're better able to navigate their way around challenges they're better able to adapt they're they're better able to deal with stress and so the question when I talk to people as they say, yeah, that's great, but how do we become more creative? And, and and I think you nail it in this book because we all have five senses. We all understand these senses. And just to step back, and I did, when I read your personal profile, one of the sounds you said that is on your list is the roar. I think it was the number six, the roar of the subway train as it comes into the station. I can hear that. I've never really stopped and thought about how unique and interesting and powerful and different that is but as soon as you said it i got it so so thank you for doing that it is interesting how our senses can lead us to our creativity absolutely that's the thing is whatever aim we're seeking as we're trying to make our lives better whether we're trying to just have more productivity and focus or we're trying to boost our creativity trying to connect with other people evoke memories calm down pump up those point in different directions, but the five senses can help us with in either way. The five senses is such a powerful tool. And yeah, with creativity, I think people are like, yeah, creativity is great, but I don't know if I have it or how to get more of it. And with the five senses, it's, you start to quickly think of like, oh, well, there are things I could do. I could write a taste timeline of my life and like mm. tell the story of my life through taste. And it's like, that is really fun. And there's just so many ways that we can tap into our five senses. I want to go back, if I can, because we, we interviewed you in 2009, and, you know, as I was preparing for this, I wanted to talk about your books and what got lost in my preparation, and I'm afraid it might in many people, is the fact that you're a graduate of uh, Yale Law School, the fact that you clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor before you began writing best-selling biographies on JFK and Winston Churchill before you totally reinvented yourself to become, you know, what I think is generally considered maybe the most influential self-help writer in the world, or at least one of them. I promise you there's a question here. Uh, your, your books seem to be a journey of self-discovery that you thankfully take all of us with you along for the ride. And what a blessing it must be to have the curiosity the skill, the opportunity to pursue on a daily basis the topics that you do, the power of habit, the pursuit of happiness, the importance of our five senses. I know it's not easy, but the personal benefits beyond the fame and the fortune have got to be great. So please tell me that you're incredibly happy because being 
miserable would be off brand for Gretchen Rubin. Are you happy? <laughs> are you are you happy most of the time? Well, you know, here's the thing. Like when I think about my nature, like my inborn person, like you know who I am when I lie in bed at night or when I'm on the subway <laughs> spacing out. I'm a seven on the one to 10 scale. Mm. I, you know, that's sort of where I, uh, my hard wiring is. But what's happened since I've been studying happiness is my experience of my life is so much happier. I have so much more fun and enthusiasm and friendship and love and tenderness. And I have so much less guilt and anger and resentment and frustration and regret. And I, my life is much more in line with my values. Um, I, I, I have live in an atmosphere of growth. I feel like if I, if I'm facing a decision about how to spend my time or my money or my energy, I'm really able to think about, well, okay, is this probably going to be something that's going to make me happier or not? Because it turns out people are pretty bad at what's called hedonic forecasting, but I spent a lot of time thinking about hedonic forecasting. So I'm better <laughs> than I was when I started. Um, so you're right. I mean, they say that research is me search and I am definitely a person who has a tendency to turn my personal challenges into professional projects. So that's great, <laughs> but it, it definitely has made my life so much happier. And I just behave myself better. I mean, a lot of happiness, I think, is just living up to your own hopes and values. And um, I feel like I've, I have tried to do a lot of work to do a better job with that. Well, you've got an authentic voice. You've got a credible voice. And that's not easy. And could we could we convince you to run for office uh, and, and fix and fix <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this this is not this is not a rhetorical question Gretchen Rubin what the hell is wrong with us because it seems like there is more division more hate and more unhappiness than ever so you know to the guru if you will of, of happiness what's wrong what's happened that is a very complicated question. <laughs> and uh, I would say that, you know, one of the best ways to make ourselves happy is to make other people happy. One of the best ways to make other people happy is to be happy ourselves. And so one of the best ways to strengthen ourselves to engage with the problems of the world is to think about our own happiness. Because when we do that, we actually do strengthen ourselves to um, take action in the world. Well, let's leave it here because I think it's a pretty good intersection between what you write about and what we try to do on a daily basis. I think Growing Boulder has probably interviewed more active centenarians than maybe any other media group in the world. And we always try to find out, you know, what it is that keeps them going. We ask the obvious question, you know, what's the secret? And without exception, and they all have their own version of this, but they say the secret the secret is recognizing life's little miracles. The secret is, mm. is stopping to see the beauty and the things that we all miss. Uh, and I think that's exactly what your book is about. Yes, yes. No, I think that's exactly right. It's just to appreciate the ordinary day and all its evanescence, uh, in all its beauty. Uh, and it's, it is, it's like Andy Warhol said, it's hard. Um, we really have to remember um, and uh, and I, it, it was such a joy to me to really take the time to appreciate everything that the world offers, just pours out every day that's so easy to ignore. Well, thank you again for doing it. I can't wait to, to see what you do next because I know it's going to be something that will benefit us all. You know, folks, she is Gretchen Rubin. Her latest book is Life Enriching. It is Life in Five Senses. It, it's pretty much a guide to shutting off the autopilot that controls, you know, really f five of our greatest gifts and actually engaging with each of our five senses. And it's, you know, it's not just fun. 
It's not just thought-provoking. It is filled with practical, actionable steps that can help you tap into your five senses. And you can find Gretchen on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Gretchen Rubin. That's R-U-B-I-N, or, of course, her website, GretchenRubin.com. Gretchen, thanks again, and I look forward to talking again uh, when you write your next one. I can't wait. Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you again. She always wanted to figure skate, but never gave it a try until she was 60, and that was just the beginning of her story. It's a Growing Boulder classic, and it's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. And think about the things you've always wanted to do in your life and so far never have. Ride a motorcycle, take a trip to Europe. Well, Connie Curry always wanted to figure skate, even dreamed about it, but never gave it a try until she finally decided it was time at the age of 60. She had no idea how that was about to change her life. Soon, she was competing in figure skating events all over the world. We had a chance to talk to Connie about it when she was 77 in this Growing Boulder Classic interview from 2016. Hey, Connie, how are you? Hi, how are you? Uh, Man, I I am great. I I bet people ask you all the time, what is the matter with you? Nobody (laughs) learns to skate at the age of 60. In fact, people who have skated all their lives usually stop before they get to 60. Didn't anybody tell you that uh, trying to skate was a bad idea? No, nobody told me. (laughs) (laughs) So what led you to do it? What, what, What popped into your mind that made you think that this was something you wanted to do? what I was living with my uh, 95 year old father he was living with us and I asked him if he had any regrets in life and he told me his regrets and uh, then he looked at me right in the eye and said what are your regrets and I said oh I don't have any and he said sure you do and I started thinking and then I I remembered that I always wanted to learn how to figure skate and I wanted to wear a really pretty dress like I'd seen on TV. And he just looked at me and he said, well, what's stopping you? Why don't you go start tomorrow? Why don't you go rent some skates and go give it a try tomorrow? So do you, do you get that, folks? Connie, this is incredible. Your 95-year-old father inspired you to this. And, yes, he did. And, and now it's it's you at your age that, that are inspiring all kinds of people to think, you know what, I can do this too. Oh, I hope so. I, I hope so. That I feel so good when somebody tells me that, uh, you know, I, I watched you skate and I always wanted to play the, the guitar and now I'm going to pick it up and learn. And it just makes me feel really good inside. You know, the other thing we love about this story, Connie, is we tell people all the time to get out there and and try stuff and understand that you're not going to be good at it at first. Everybody fails initially. And, And I'm guessing that you had to as well. You couldn't have been good the first time you hit the ice. Oh, no, absolutely not. But, uh, yeah, I tr- don't judge myself. I, I find as an adult that a lot of people judge themselves, and uh, that can really get you into trouble. You should just go out and play and try something new, and 
I think the judgment is a big thing. I never did judge myself. Maybe I should have, but I, I didn't. Every little thing I learned, I was so excited that it was something new. Now, now Connie, I, I think we should point out here that skating isn't the first time you've tried something that you were told you could not do. Skating and is only a part of your incredible story. Is it true you never learned to read or to write until college? Uh, Yeah, that's true. Um, I was born with albinism, which um, is a condition where there's a lack of pigment. You usually have poor vision. And um, back in those days, because I'm an oldie moldy, uh, they put kids in institutions then. And so I really never had an opportunity to even be learning. I was just so hungry to learn uh, by the time I got to college that um, I I begged them to give me a chance because, of course, I didn't really uh i wasn't able to qualify to get into college but anyway i went to st louis university and ended up with a master's degree but i fell in love with learning and had to memorize everything so when i heard a lecture it's either get it the first time or don't get it so i i really learned to use my memory and focus and um got creative. I met a lot of kids that were in the honors program, and I'd say, hey, what was he talking about this morning? And they'd tell me, and then I'd get to hear it again. So That's amazing. Were you always this this passionate about life? Were you always this, this fearless, the, willing to take these kind of risks, or is this something that you grew into? Well, I, th- I think I had very smart parents. Uh, you know, I was very shy when I was younger, and I really didn't want to uh, walk out on the streets alone. I remember I was out the first time and I bumped into a parking meter and it really hurt me. It almost knocked me over. And I, I, I remember going back and crying and my mother saying, you get back out there and do it again. That's the time you need to do it again if you're scared because you need to get over that. So I think I had very wise parents that um, really encouraged me and um, pushed me to look at another side of fear. And here you are, Connie, learning all of the, you know, you're playing the banjo now, you know, you're trying an instrument, you know, you're doing things you never did before. Your life is opening up like a giant blossom. What is life like at 77? Yeah, it it is opening up and, um, I, and it's always been opening up. <laughs> um, I also, um, run a balloon decorating business and been done that for 35 years and, uh, we're one of the oldest companies around, I think, in the United States, because there weren't any balloons way back then. So that's been a real adventure also. I, I never wanted my clients to know that I didn't see well, so I, I'd have somebody drive me around to the hotels, and I would get on a lift, and I'd go up to the ceiling, and I would memorize what was up on the ceiling so that when I went to bid a job, I could say, oh, yes, we can rig from this point and that point, but I had seen it ahead of time up on a lift. So um, I had to get very creative. Folks, are you getting this again? This is uh, Connie Curry, who took up ice skating at the age of 60. She's now 77. She couldn't read or write, and yet she got into college and ended up with a master's degree and became a principal. Uh, and, and Connie, I'm going to play the role of your 95-year-old father because you, you've, you, you've learned the beauty of, uh, of not living with regrets. Is there anything else that you want, want to do that uh, you've not yet done? Do you have any regrets? You know what? I don't have regrets, but I want to keep growing, and I want to keep 
paying attention to other people. And even though I'm learning the banjo, I, I love to play with other people. And if somebody comes in with less skills than I have, I like to uh, encourage them to get out there and try. There's a lot of fulfillment in that for me when I can bring somebody else along. And also a skater, like um, like somebody told me that they fell 10 years ago and they quit skating and they contacted me and I'm offered to go out and skate with them to get back on the ice. And I love I love doing that kind of thing, just being part of other people's lives in any way that I can. And kind of we like to uh, wrap up all of our interviews with this question. It's the most important of all because all of us have challenges in life. You have already told us that you've had more than most. So what can we learn from you on how to deal with them, how to face these challenges? What's the moral of the Connie Curry story? I think to trust, to trust yourself, to trust in the universe, to trust that um, – that you're going to be okay, whatever you do. And even if you fail, you're still okay. You don't have to succeed. You just have to get out there and try it and, and have joy in your heart when you do it. I, I feel so joyful when I skate. I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, but as soon as I get near the ice ring, I start feeling happy inside. And I know that I'm supposed to be there. Even if I fall, I take my falls like everybody else. I have usually two or three really hard falls a year. And uh, you just got to get up and, and keep doing it. Doing, I know what to tell you. Just follow, find out what you love to do and get out there and do it. Proving that if you think you're too old to try something you've always wanted to do, you are wrong. Our thanks to Connie Curry, who at 77 is a competitive figure skater at the international level. A woman who laced her skates up for the very first time at the age of 60. And Connie, thank you. That is what we call growing bolder. Well, if you were worried about Connie falling and getting hurt, you weren't alone. But I am pleased to tell you that Connie is now 83 years old, and she is still skating, still competing, and still inspiring others to think about that thing they always wanted to do, and then, of course, to get out there and do it. Up next, heartfelt words of wisdom from a 98-year-old on what he learned in World War II and how his experiences then continued to shape the person he is to this day. This is Growing Bolder. Stay connected to Growing Bolder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Well, one thing we all have in common is that life isn't easy. Along with the joy and excitement and love comes challenges, heartache, and loss. So how do we do it? Where do we get the strength to push through the tough times? Well, Irving Locker knows. At the age of 98, he has experienced pretty much everything, and there's a lot we can learn from ordinary people who've lived extraordinary lives. Are you the hottest 98-year-old celebrity in the yeah, country today? Could be, could be. I don't know, but it could be. 
Irving Locker just might be the most interesting man alive. At 98 years old, he's just about seen it all. He survived five major battles in World War II, including Battle of the Bulge and D-Day. And at 18, he became one of the youngest staff sergeants in all the Army. At five foot one, he may be short in stature, but boy does he have a huge heart. And not just back then, but even to this day. I wear this hat and a young man stops me. He says, I was only five years old when my father got killed in World War II. And I never had a chance to talk to him and see what it was all about and different things. And uh, I said to him, well, here's my card. I have a lot of memorabilia that I brought home from the war. Come over and I'll explain everything to you and I'll answer as many questions as I can to help you out to talk about the war. I gave him my card. Two weeks later, he called me on the phone. He says, you're not going to believe this. I found your name in my father's army book. He had, was in my outfit, and I knew him very well. And we talked and talked, and today they came to my home with his wife and children and just picked up that flag. His father signed that flag, picked up that flag and held it in her cheek and cried. And it, it, it's amazing the pleasure I get from trying to help people that way. It's why Locker tells his story as often as he can at schools and civic groups and when he speaks word gets around. It's an amazing situation since I've been in the newspaper as often as I am and I've been on television and I've been with the president of the United States. Uh, people have contacted me. Uh, I'm booked solid every single day to go to the different churches to the different organizations and I bring all of this material with me to show people that freedom is not free. He's one of the few left who could actually tell us what it was like to storm the beaches at Normandy. It's terrifying. It's absolutely mind-shattering to, to jump into that water. Now, you, you're talking coming off a Higgins boat where the door flops down, and you come into five foot of water. And at the time, I was five foot one with a three-pound helmet with a 27-pound pack on my back, with ammunition across my chest, with guns, with everything else that we could carry, because everything you owned had to come in with you, otherwise it was no good. Can you imagine me jumping into five feet of water, not being terrified, not being scared out of my mind, and then coming to, to the beach? Those experiences left scars, mental wounds that never went away. When I lecture about the war, I'm fine. When I lecture about the Holocaust, I don't sleep at night. It's, it's so terrifying in my head of what man's inhumanity to man, what they did to people, that it's unbelievable. Locker believes he was able to endure because of his good upbringing. Good upbringing? You were dirt poor. Dirt poor money-wise but very rich and loving goodness. We were so loving with, with our family that it was unbelievable. Family is everything to him. After the war, he came home and married Bernice, and that was 74 years ago. But their love story also came with heartache, as both of their sons died untimely deaths. Somehow, he always seems to find a way to push forward, to move ahead, and to find meaning. It has to come from within, and there has to be a purpose. And that's my purpose in life, to show people that life can be beautiful, 
and life can be enjoyable and you have to work at it to do it. You can't just sit back and take it for granted. It's what makes him stand apart, his ability to bounce back. Even at 98 years of age, he's always been able to find a way to live with compassion, purpose, and joy. I look forward to my life. I look forward to living, and I'm grateful. I'm, I talk about thanking God, but I'm so grateful to have come through that war and come through the businesses and come through all of the different things and coming through losing my sons and, uh, and having my wife with me. I'm, I'm grateful for that. So it's looking at the dark side or looking at the bright side as far as I'm concerned. So I try to look at the bright side. And the people have to do that. People have to look at the bright side and not worry about what the past brought them. And if you can do it. Everybody can do it. If you have the right attitude, you can do it. Now, Irving Locker is amazing because if you have the right attitude, he proves that you can do just about anything. You know, he mentioned his family. Well, if you've ever had any issues in your family, and who doesn't, Irving has a lot to say about that, too. He and Bernice have been married for 75 years, and they've got some tips and advice that actually work, which you can find at growingbolder.com slash Locker. Having the support of your family means just about everything, especially when you're facing significant transitions in your life. Things like realizing that it might be time to find a smaller place to live or relocate near the kids or consider assisted living. But there are ways to make it a whole lot easier. Organizations are out there that do that all the time. One is called Caring Transitions, and Senior Strategic Advisor Carrie Coombs explains what they do and how they're making a difference for many. We live in, to a large extent, a, a DIY world. People want to do everything themselves. Talk a little bit about why trying to transition by yourself or even with just the help of maybe your child or your spouse or your sister-in-law is not necessarily a good idea. What can a professional bring to that experience? Well, I tell you, one of my favorite sites to get a good laugh or two is the DIY fail. They're having a little fun at their own expense to say, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have tried that on my own. Now think about this for a second. You have a loved one, somebody who's experienced maybe a change of condition, a life change, whether it be physical or emotional or financial. And then you throw in the emotions of that change. And then you're going to try and do the DIY experience. As a family influencer, and I am one myself, I am an adult child, and I experience these transitions and changes in my own world. I really don't want a wing and a prayer to come into play. I want to do this with a coach, an advisor, a professional so that I can focus on my loved one and let them know that this is a good thing. This is a good time and I'm here by your side and it's gonna be okay. Let me focus on that and I'll let the professionals do the packing, sorting, downsizing, cleaning, preparing, unpacking, and all the things that they are just great at while I go and be a really good daughter. And with Caring Transitions, you're getting all of that. You're getting professionals who come into your space. They understand where you're going and what you want to do and start developing an individualized plan. And I think that when you have the right people on your team, people who understand your goals, 
then you can get into your community or your downsized location, your new experience, and you can do it with a type of gusto and fervor that says, I'm here with purpose. That's Carrie Coombs from Caring Transitions, and she says a big part of the problem is that most families don't want to have the conversation. They end up putting it off until they're right in the middle of having to make some difficult decisions very quickly. Her advice, talk about it now. Have a plan and be aware of the resources that are out there to help. Is there anything you can do today to increase your lifespan? Longevity expert Roger Landry has some advice next. This is Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Here's something to think about. Do you, do you ever wonder why some people live longer and, and age better than others? Well, they used to say it was all about heredity, but they don't say that anymore. So what is it that makes the biggest difference? Longevity expert Dr. Roger Landry says it's pretty much up to the way you live your life. It's been definitively proven that lifestyle is the major determinant. That's the choices you make. They should be holistic, not just the physical, but also the intellectual and social and the spiritual even. There's meaning and purpose. And that it's really up to them. And it's not hard to do. You don't have to run marathons. You don't have to, you know, eat bark. You know, it's as easy to do. It's just be aware and chip away at it. Dr. Roger Landry with some really good news there. You're not nearly as predestined to live long or die young as I used to think. And we have a great deal of control, and it comes from making smart choices, both physically and mentally. And we're going to start by doing that right now, Mark. What is on your mind today? You know, Roger Landry is a great segue to this, Bill, because what's on my mind today is the National Senior Games. As you know, we just got back from uh, the NSG, if you will, in Pittsburgh. And, you know, here's the deal. Chronic diseases are now the leading cause of death and disability uh, in the U.S., and of course, they're also the most costly. We're spending about 80 cents out of every dollar on preventable chronic illness, and 40% of all American adults any age have at least one preventable chronic illness. 85% of those 65 and older have multiple chronic illnesses, and again, most are preventable. And how are they prevented? They're prevented through lifestyle. So here's the point, and here's how it connects to the National Senior Games, if you will. If lifestyle is the medicine, and almost everybody agrees that it is, then culture is the spoon. It's our culture that encourages us culture that supports us. And that's what the National Senior Games is. That's what I love about it. That's how I feel every time I come back. It's not that we saw great athletic performances. It's not that we saw records being broken. It's that we were part of a culture of lifestyle, positive lifestyle. Older adults uh, of all conditions, all abilities, all disabilities who are into getting enough sleep, eating the right kind of food, continuing to move, socializing, having fun. It's a culture that's delivering 
the medicine of lifestyle. Now, your live coverage from Pittsburgh was fantastic. And folks, you can still see those reports at growingbolder.com. But my favorite one, Mark, was the one where you talked about why Growing Boulder goes to such great lengths to cover the event. And it's not about winning and losing and who did what. Can you recap what you said? Yeah, you know, it, it kind of put the National Senior Games on their heels for a moment because we told them that we don't care who wins. You know, we're not there to report the results. We're there to follow the inspirational stories. Uh, and, and, you know, as you're noting, sometimes when we follow the inspirational stories, it does take us to the top of the podium. It does take us to the record breakers. And we'll go there because we love that. But many times it just takes us to the ordinary man and woman who is out there getting it done just because they want to live a better life, a longer life. They want to have a health span that matches their lifespan, and participating in that culture does it. Yeah, and sometimes they're not even really athletic people, but they're people that have that lust for life and that want to have new adventures and live their life to the fullest. Mark, it's a fantastic event, as we found out time and time again, and we meet the most incredible people. And folks, if you want to be one of them, just live the growing bolder philosophy. See you next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming roll, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh